Amen. Take your Bibles out, turn to the book of Hebrews. I do want you to know ice cream is international. <laughs> Just in case you was wondering. Do ask you to pray for us. We'll be next week, we will be in uh, California. Uh, we'll be going out there this weekend preaching a mission conference out there, so I'd sure appreciate your prayers. Uh, people say, well, you know, when you go to these mission conferences, do you ever accomplish anything? Uh, the last three that we've been in have doubled their missions giving in each one of the churches. The last one we was in, the guy, one of the guys surrendered. He's already made application to the mission board, accepted, and he'll be in candidate school in December. And there's a couple others that are really praying about it. So we really need your prayers that God would use us to, to influence uh, people for the cause of Christ. And, uh, and I'm not much of a traveler anymore, so uh, pray for us. <laughs> and ice cream still is international. Amen. Just wanted you to get that. <clears throat> the purpose of the incarnation. You could, you could preach this message tonight. Uh, as a Christmas message, if you, if you wanted to, because it tells all about the purpose of the incarnation. Not maybe the way you've thought of it before, but let's go ahead and start in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse number 5. It says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put it all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is to be put under him, but now we see, we, we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Father, we ask that you'd bless tonight as we study your word. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Lord, that we might be changed because of it. In his name we pray, amen. He was told who the son is Chapter 1, up to this point, he explains that. He warns us to pay close attention, serious attention to the message that his son has given and the others have given. And he continues that same context. And it's important that you get the context in this tonight. Otherwise, that you'll do what I did for many years and totally preach an opposite message. Uh, the context shows what's going on here. He concludes or continues in that context proving who the Son is and why the Son came. 
Now remember, he starts out, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And as you get that in context, and he starts laying out the proofs, proving who the Son is, he's still doing that. And so what we're talking about tonight is all about proving who he is. So in verse number five, he says, for, referring back to what he's just said, because of what he just said, he says, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. So he says, the angels, they're only servants. Yes, they have great power, but they, and they're in the presence of God, but the Son is greater. He's given the Son greater privilege than he has the angels. Notice he talks about the world to come. I have battled with this thing for hours, researching and praying and meditating on this thing. I don't know if it's talking about the millennial kingdom or the kingdom to come when he creates all things new and gives us a new heaven or new earth. It just is not that clear on, on what it is. But one way or the other, he's ruling. He is the master there. So whether it refers to the millennial kingdom or the new heaven and the new earth, I don't think it really makes that much difference. He's still going to be ruling. But we get to verse number six, and he says, But one in a certain place testified, saying, now he's talking about David. He's going to quote scripture from Psalm chapter eight. And he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? I can't tell you the number of times that I have pondered on that verse throughout my ministry these 30, 40 years and just thinking, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You ever sit there in your chair or, you know, wherever you're at and just sit there, what, why would God love me? Who am I? Who are we? You look at what's going on in this world today. Why would God? Love man. It's absolutely amazing. But he, he, he quotes this from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 to 6. And we'll get there in just a little bit. But this is a very confusing passage. It's been, it's been debated by scholars for centuries. Uh, and they're, they're questioning, is this passage speaking of Jesus Christ or is it speaking of us, man? Now, now look at it again. He says, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? And I've heard preachers preach it that this is Jesus and it's talking about him being the son of man and, and, and that that when God came down, visited him with the Holy Spirit, visited him on the mountain, visited him. And they've got several different proof texts that sound pretty good. 
I don't try to be a rebel. I really don't. Some of you may doubt that, but I really don't try to be a rebel. But um, I don't agree with that. I did for years, but as the more I study, uh, if you go back to Psalm chapter 8, I think they've got it on the, the, the board there, Psalm chapter 8. I want you to look. I, I, honestly, I think David was speaking about himself. He had no idea that he was speaking prophetically. Okay? Had no earthly idea he was speaking prophetically. But in Psalm chapter 8, let's just all turn there. I've, that way you, you don't miss this. Because I think it's very important here. Psalm chapter 8, let's look in verse number 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Now watch verse 3. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. I believe with all my heart as David is maybe sitting out there in, in, the, in the pasture or maybe under an oak tree or something. And David is contemplating and thinking about God and and rejoicing and worshiping God. Oh, Lord, my God, how awesome you are. And as he looks up into the heaven and it says he, he sees the, the heavens. Do you have those pictures there, brother? They didn't, Shane didn't get you? I'll kill him. All the diff when you look at the, what they're finding out about through that Hubble telescope and all of this, we are nothing, the whole earth is nothing but a grain of sand on the whole Hawaiian beach. One little grain of sand. The, and you go out and you look at the stars and, and you see the planets and the more you look, the more they start appearing and you, and you see all of these things which end up looking like galaxies. And then you find out that that's not even, and it's further back and there's more and more. And I think as, as David was lay, maybe laying down looking up at the stars, and he saw that and he, and he began to reflect like you and I do. And he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man? As you see David's mind, I have, 
I have no doubt that he was not thinking this is prophecy. I'm prophesying here. David was thinking about himself. He had been given the kingdom. He had been given honor, majesty, glory, servants, money, armies, you name it. He'd been given everything. He thinks back to Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve were given dominion over all the earth. As he begins to think about this, that's why when he says, I considered thy heaven, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou had ordained. When he considered the, the vastness just the majesty, the immensity, the beauty of heaven. You can't even describe it. Who are we? What a question. God loves me not because of me. God loves me because of who he is. God is love. And he says, thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor. Thou didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that was put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So as he continued that quote in Psalms 8, verses 4 to 6, he said, Thou madest him, Adam and Eve, he created them, he made them lower than the angels. Yes, he made Jesus lower than the angels, but I think as you'll see, this pertains to man and not Jesus Christ. What glory, what splendor God gave to, to Adam and Eve. He created them in the very image of God. They were perfect in every way, not one Jot one tittle, nothing was wrong. They didn't even have a pimple. Not one blemish. It's hard for us to imagine that. The, the, the way, the, the glory, the freedom, the, they were perfect. What honor. Above all the creation, can you imagine walking in the garden with God. Not just praying in your prayer place, but fellowshipping and walking with Almighty God and Him talking back to you and you having a conversation with God Himself. What honor. Loving Him fellowshipping with him. He said he did set him over the work of thy hands in Genesis 1:26 and God said, "Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth." He just said what he did back in Genesis. God made the whole world to serve man. God didn't need air. God didn't need a place to put his feet. The sun shines for man. The rain 
is there for man. The trees grow for man. The perfume of the flower grows for man. Everything we see, God did for man. He didn't need any of it. The music of the birds. My wife and I, like on our YouTube, we don't turn the TV on until late in the evening. It's just our policy. We just don't turn it on during the day. But we do put them bird sounds on there. I like studying, listening to the birds sing. It's beautiful. God did that for us. But he says, but now, because of the fall of man, man lost that dominion. And now Satan rules. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Matthew 4, 8 and 9 and Luke 4, 5 to 7 and John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince, that means ruler. Now the prince of this world be cast out. If you haven't noticed, Jesus Christ is not ruling this earth. That's why in the millennial kingdom, he will be established as the king and he will rule as with a rod of iron as the king. He still is the king, but he's not ruling. He had, he's given that dominion to man and man lost it and Satan took it. And all these passages say that same thing. So man through his sin and his wickedness, has destroyed the works of God in every turn. Yet not all things put under him. That's why we are not in control anymore. We are, we're, not, we're not functioning in control. Oh, we still have dominion over some things, but not over more or most of them. That's why Romans 8, 22 says, for we know that the whole earth groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. The earth groans. The believers groan to be released from this old sinful world and to be present with God in heaven. We, not, we don't yet have that dominion again. But one day, and whether you believe that all that was talking about Jesus or whether he was talking about man, that's up to you and I'm not going to argue with you. I think he was talking about man because of the next verse. He says, but we see Jesus. He's been talking about man and he says, but now he says, we see Jesus. He changes gears. We've been talking about man, but now, he says, we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. I believe he was given us an example, an illustration using man. And now he comes and says, but this is better. Jesus. Don't put your focus on that. Put your focus on Jesus. He's what the important point of this whole, whole message is, that we would see Jesus. God here identifies himself who the Son is. 
He's gone all the way talking about the son, the son, the son, the son. He's appointed. He's son placed. He's all of this. But now God says, but we see Jesus. He's the one he's been talking about. He's the one he is talking about. He identifies them to the Jews. They were very familiar with him. They had crucified him not long before. They were looking for a king. They were looking for royalty. But Jesus came not as royalty. He came born in a, in a lowly stable. He, he grew around the rest of the children. He was rejected by his own family. He willfully submitted himself to the authority of men. His parents, the government, the religious system, he willfully submitted himself to all of that. He was tested by Satan. He agonized in the garden. He was always knowing what was coming. He knew he was God. He knew one day he would die on that cross. He knew all of the things that were going to happen. And I don't know about you, but, but there's good things I'm glad I don't know that's going to happen down the road. If I know, I think I'd skip out. But all this time in his perfect knowledge, he knew what was coming. That has to weigh heavily on someone. He who knew no sin, yet he was going to take the sin of the world. I've been telling you over and over how many times that, that we in America live in a bubble. What you see going on in, in Gaza and when they're attacking and they're ripping people apart and everything. We see that in Africa all the time. That, that isn't new. In your tribal warfare and stuff like that, that's, that's worldwide. We are not aware of it because it's not politically popular or incorrect, whatever. But Jesus was going through the mockings as they crowned him with the thorns, as they beat him. The soldiers and the religious people spitting on him and slapping him around. When we, we get the wrong picture. Now, now you stop and think, Rome hated Israel. They hated Israel. Does that sound familiar? You put a bunch of Hamas people, you've got Rome. And they're going to arrest this Jesus, and they're going to take him, and they're just going to say, okay, honey, come on, let's go over here. Could you come over here a bit? No, they're going to be kicking him. They're going to be hitting him, just like in a mob. If you've ever been in a mob, I'm telling you that people start throwing blows from everywhere. They don't even know who the person is. We've watched it on the streets over there. Somebody, I watched a guy come all the way across the street just over here to kick somebody. He didn't have any idea who the guy was, but they'd, they'd caught him stealing and they'd stripped him everything. All he had was a belt. And they're just kicking and beating the fire out of him. 
when these guys have arrested Jesus and they're taking him in there, they're not, they're not going to Sunday school. They're treating them like Hamas treats the Jews. When they beat him with that cat of nine tails, I mean, they're ripping pieces off of flesh off of him. You can't, you, you, you can't, you got to get out of America and get the mindset of what, what the world does. And that's what you're seeing over there. That's how degraded, that's how wicked and ruthless men are. And that's the wicked people that was torturing and crucifying Jesus Christ here. His hands, his feet, his bones, they've nailed them to the cross. People say, well, we've heard that before. Never get used to it. Never get used to it. When you start getting away from the, from the cross, you've got a serious spiritual problem. When you get discouraged and you start looking at the world, get away from the TV, get away from all of it, and go back and read what Jesus did at the cross. Because that's where he brings us here. Never get used to it. The suffering, both physically and emotionally. Can you imagine him hanging on that cross, gasping for breath? But then he sees his mother out here. His mother, no doubt, is weeping and torn apart. That's her son. And her heart is just broken. You've seen the people over in... In Israel, and, they, and they've ripped up their relatives, and, and they're just, they just have no strength. They're just. And to see his mother watching him on that cross, he loved his mother too. To understand the, the mental pain, he, he wasn't guilty. But yet he was being punished and accused of not being guilty. His friends, all those that were with him, the disciples, they've ran. They've left him. And to be separated from his father. Whenever I'm in a bad situation in, in Africa or something, I like to get close to somebody that I know and I can trust. And when you're separated, when I first went to Africa, I was scared to death. I'm telling you, I, I shook in my boots. I'd never seen black folks before, hardly. I, I'd never been around. But I go over there to Africa, and I mean, the, my missionary guide, I was a, he was here, I was here. And I mean, everywhere he went, that's where he turned this way, I turned that way. And he said, let's go down to market. I said, I'd rather just stay here in the hotel. He said, no, come on. <laughs> We get down the, out the marketplace and, I, and we're walking through the market. And I mean, the market is congested and it's small aisle and it's out in the open and stinks and all kinds of stuff and people and screaming and shouting and all of this and bartering and whatnot. And I mean, I was glued to this old boy. And something caught my eye and I looked down there. I don't even remember what it was. 
I couldn't have been there two seconds. And I looked back up and that old boy is gone. I never heard of a panic attack before, but I think I had one. I said, what in the world? And it's like God said, look around, son. Is anybody trying to kill you? Is anybody trying to knife you and beat you up? He said, I, I called you here. I can take care of you. And you know, from that day on, I didn't have a problem. Because I knew who was with me. All of this excruciating bodily pain, the emotional pain, the physical pain, all of this. He's taking my sin upon him. He's taking your sin upon him. It says he was crowned. Not with a crown of thorns, but he was crowned. It means to adorn with honor. To crown as a victor in the games. Look, he is our savior. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. And given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Don't look at the crown of thorns as being crowned. Look at the crown that God gave his son. He's the Savior. He's crowned with glory and honor. He repeats that from verse 7, but he is the Redeemer. He's our Redeemer. In man's eyes, Jesus only had that crown of thorns, but he was victorious. And that's why in, in verse 8, it said, he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even to the death of the cross. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is no higher exalted place anywhere. When he was crowned and he was given glory, he did what he was supposed to do and God exalted him and he set him at his right hand the, mo the greatest position most exalted position in all of the, uh, of the world or the universe to be at the right hand of God the Father he was crowned with glory and honor that's why in Acts 2, 33, it says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God, exalted. Mark 16, 19, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Over and over, he continues to repeat this, showing us that he was exalted. He was not defeated at the cross. It wasn't the crown of thorns. It was the exaltation of the Father. It says, he, by the grace of God, no one deserved this. 
None of us deserve salvation. None of us deserve the air that we breathe. None of us deserves anything good. We deserve to die and go to a devil's hell forever. But by the grace of God, his life, his death, his gift of salvation, the grace, the grace, unmerited. What a gift. What a love. What a Savior. I love that song. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It says he tasted death. Why did he become a man? He tasted death. As God, he couldn't taste death. God can't die. But as a man, he could. And it says he tasted death to partake or experience. He experienced my death. My eternal punishment was placed on him. And it says for every man, say that with me, for every man. You hear of these Calvinists and people saying, oh, he died just for a few or for the select and everything. What does every mean? It means all. When I first got saved, I heard an expression from a missionary. He said, all means all, and that's all all means. And I've held to it ever since. He died for every man. If you die and go to hell, it's not his fault. He died for you. He shed his blood for you. He tasted death for you. If you will not humble yourself and recognize that you're a lost sinner separated from a holy God and cry out to him and say, oh God, I'm a sinner. Save my wretched soul. Don't you ever blame God. Because he's already done it. He's done it for you. He tasted death for every man. There is no such thing as Calvinism. That's man's doctrine. Hebrews 2 and verse number 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons into glory or unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. It became him. The, the term became him is it was necessary. It was right. It was the right thing to do. It was the necessary thing to do because it was God's plan. It was Jesus. That was his plan. It was necessary. We could not have a Savior without him becoming man. It was right. It says, for whom are all things, everything, including man, was made for him. And for his glory, for his pleasure. But he says in bringing many sons to glory, that's the purpose. That's the purpose for him tasting death. That's the purpose for his suffering. That's the purpose for all of this. He's trying to show the Jews that are so caught up in, in their false teaching. They're trying to show the Jew that this man, Jesus, is the very son of God. He had to become man in order to die on that cross. 
Because God can't die. He can't cease to be. Jesus as a man, 100% God, but 100% man. And he died on that cross to pay for your sin and mine. He tasted death for every man because it was right, because it was necessary in order to bring many sons unto glory. Many, not few. I know it says the broad is the way and many there go that and there in the, the narrow way and few there be that find it. But over a period of time, there's many. Look around you in the room. Look around on Sunday morning. And there's churches all over this world of people that have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. God says he was bringing many sons. In the glory. Luke 19.10, one of my favorite verses said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he had to become a man. That's why this whole passage, he's trying to get this across to the Hebrews. Yes, Jesus is a man. But there's a reason for that. Notice he talks about the captain of their salvation. That he's the savior. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. He's the captain of it all. He's the author of it all. But he said that captain would be made perfect. Now why? I thought Jesus was perfect. Not for us. You see... For him to understand my problem, my difficulty, my feeling, my suffering. For him to be that perfect high priest that I can come to and that he can relate to me in every aspect of life. He had to go through that suffering. And that's what he's saying. Notice, go back and look at it. For it became him for whom are all things and to whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Through suffering. Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He lived the law perfectly on our behalf. He experienced the suffering and the anguish and everything that we go through, he's experienced it. And because of that, when we go to him in prayer and we come to that throne of God and say, God, I need some help. We know that he understands us. It don't make any difference if, 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 if there's a medical problem. Do you think he didn't have a medical problem here? <laughs> His body was just riddled. You don't think he had the fear of dying? Father, 
If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. He has experienced everything that you and I can experience. He knows what we go through. And yet, he was without sin. And that's why we can trust him. And that's why anything that comes in our life, daily life, whatever, we can bring to him and know that he understands. We don't have to wonder. We know that he knows what we're going through. Made Lord and an angel, suffered and died on the cross, seated at the right hand of the Father for us. Do you have the song Amazing Grace up there, brother? I'd like us to just sing Amazing Grace. As I sit in my chair going over these notes for about the hundredth time, and I'm serious about that, I don't take these messages lightly. <laughs> what amazing grace. Not one of us deserves salvation. But by God's grace, he saved us. Not one of us deserved Jesus going to that cross. But by his grace, he saved us. He did all of this for us. Brother, why don't you come? I'm not a good song leader. I mean, I could wing it, but it would be better if he does it. What's that? 456? Oh, just, well, just one's enough. Just to listen, listen what you're saying. Let's stand. Go ahead and stand. We'll sing the first verse. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He tasted death for you. He did all that on the cross to pay for our sins. Do we love him? Are we grateful for it? Do we realize who we're dealing with? The very Son of God. Father, have your will in each heart. Lord, finish the message tonight on our behalf. God, do what we cannot do. Help us to love you in a greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother.